three pastors were having lunch together. The first one said, you know, since the summer started, I've been having a lot of trouble with bats in the loft in the attic of my church. I've tried everything. Nothing seems to scare them away. The second pastor replied, me too. I got hundreds of those things living in my belfry and in the narthex attic, and I don't know how to get rid of them. The third pastor said, yeah, I had that problem a while ago. So I baptized them and made them members of the church, and I haven't seen one back since. It's not uncommon for someone to attend church for a time and, and then be baptized and then sort of disappear. A cynic might conclude that such a person has gotten what they wanted from the experience and moved on. Maybe they had bad theology. Maybe they thought they needed to be baptized in order to stay out of hell, and so they got that, and they were content. Maybe they never really had faith. Maybe that cute Christian guy or cute Christian girl that they were dating is no longer interested, and so neither are they. All those and many others could be true. But maybe something else happened. Maybe they thought, as a new believer often will, that getting baptized and declaring for God would put them on a smoother path through this life. Maybe they believed that being on the Lord's side would make things easier. Maybe, in their fledgling faith, they were sure that God would arrange it so that they would be spared from suffering so that trials and temptations would become a thing of their past. And then when that health crisis or job loss or betrayal of a Christian friend or relationship change happened, they were astounded. They were perplexed. They, they didn't have a category for understanding what was going on. Baptism is the public declaration of an internal reality, the reality that by faith one is united to and set apart for service to God. But baptism is not a vaccine against trials. Truthfully, it's following an act of devotion like baptism that one might expect the most powerful of temptations. Because the enemy of our souls would like to derail us early, as he did with our ancestors in the Garden of Eden, and as he is trying to do here at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 4. On the heels of his baptism, poised and ready for his earthly ministry, having heard the voice of affirmation from his heavenly Father, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, Matthew writes, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Not the wilderness of thick conifer trees that you and I are used to here in the pine tree state. Not the wilderness that Pastor Mike and Joyce and prayed from this morning, but to a dry, solitary, rocky, barren place, led to a desert to be tested. And that's what the wilderness is. We know this from 
the history of Israel, the wilderness is a place of testing. Having brought them through the Red Sea, God led Israel where? Into the wilderness. And why? Deuteronomy 8.2 tells us, it reads this way, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You see the pattern? Through the waters and to the test. Through the waters and to the test. So Peter writes to the church, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. God's children can expect to be tested. And this is the purpose of the desert place, to see what's in a people, to see what's in a person's heart, to see what a person actually believes, what a person really trusts in. And the trials that you and I go through here have a similar purpose, don't they? Adversity exposes the heart. What's really in there? Whenever we are squeezed, whatever's inside comes out. So, after being publicly affirmed by his father, Jesus, in the same way that Israel was led by a cloud and a pillar of fire, is led by the Spirit to be squeezed in the wilderness. There is no doubt who he is. There is no doubt whose he is. There is no doubt that he is in God's favor. And yet, look at what's about to happen to Jesus. You and I might equate a period of great temptation and testing with the absence of God. We might even consider it the betrayal of God. We might think of it as being outside of his will or coming on us because of something that we did that we shouldn't have or some weakness that we have. Maybe we haven't been faithful walking with him. We, we come up with all these ideas about why we're going through what we're going through. But here it is clear. Jesus is God's Son. Luke tells us that he's full of the Spirit. And this time in the wilderness is ordained of God. The Holy Spirit is actively leading Jesus into a great ordeal. Beloved, God doesn't always steer his children away from trials. Sometimes he steers us straight into them. Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days, as Israel was there for 40 years. He has come to do what Israel didn't, and that is to remain faithful in the wilderness. And the great enemy of God brings his A-game to this lonely, deserted place. The devil himself shows up to do the seducing. Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, and the tempter came enticing him. Three times as Jesus is alone and without food, the enemy makes a run at the Son of God. He first tempts Jesus with an appeal to satisfy his flesh, to satisfy his body. Jesus was understandably hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. In this temptation, there seems to be a subtle insinuation going on that God is not a very good father to allow his son to suffer like this. And the message appears to be something along the lines, if he's not going to take care of you, you better take care of yourself. 
And the devil is goading Jesus into taking matters into his own hands. To use his own power to get something that his body is screaming at him, telling him he needs. Know this, friend. The devil is crafty enough to always tempt you with things that you can easily convince yourself that you need. Or in the modern vernacular, things you deserve. I deserve a wife. Or I deserve a husband, or I deserve a better wife, or I deserve a different husband. I deserve to be happy. I deserve a fancy vacation that I can't afford. I deserve to unwind with a few drinks after a hard week. Listen, the enemy wants Jesus, and in the same way, at times, wants us to believe that we need something more or different than what our Heavenly Father is providing or allowing. And then he tempts us to go on out and make that happen, to go out and get what it is we think we have to have in order to be happy, or to go on out and get away from that thing which we think is making us so unhappy. All the while, he's trying to get us to act independent of our Heavenly Father, as if we know best. He's trying to get us to act in self-serving ways, self-glorifying ways, outside of what God would truly have us to do. And here the devil has put the smell of fresh-baked bread in Jesus' famished nostrils, and the Lord responds by quoting Scripture from Deuteronomy. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now this isn't a verse that Jesus just snatched out of the air randomly, not by any stretch. This verse is Moses cautioning Israel to remember what God has done for them and why. The whole verse, Deuteronomy 8.3, reads this way, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Sometimes God lets his people hunger so they will discover what it is that truly sustains them. God has plans for his people that they know nothing about and can hardly even imagine. And our survival isn't dependent upon literal bread, but on the power of the God who supplies bread for us. Sometimes God lets his people hunger so they will find their fill in him, so he can feed them with a better, unexpected bread from heaven at the proper time. Jesus resists the temptation to take matters into his own hands and instead trusts his Father would provide what he needed, when he needed it, which, by the way, is exactly what happened when the season of testing was over. So this first temptation is really about trusting God. The next temptation has to do with testing him. Will Jesus fall for the temptation to put his Father to the test? The particular conversation between Jesus and the devil now takes place not in the wilderness like the one before it, but in Jerusalem. Matthew tells us, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And the location of this temptation gives us a clue as to what it's going to be about. The temple is the place where God has said that he dwells. 
And what do you suppose the question is that the devil is posing? What do you think the insinuation is? Jesus, is your father here? Is he really with you right now? Are you sure? Can you prove it? If you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Make him prove his presence, is what the devil is saying. Make him prove he loves you. This time Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. Deuteronomy 6.16 is a recap of a lesson learned in an incident captured in Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, the Israelites had come through a region known as the Wilderness of Sin, and they had camped at a place called Rephidim. And there wasn't any water there to drink, and the people were angry and upset about that. They began to complain and grumble. And there seemed to be a bit of a revolution brewing, and they were even contemplating, I think, stoning Moses who appealed to God, and God told him what to do. You can take your staff, you can strike a rock, the water will come out, the people will have something to drink, and that's what Moses did. But because of all the quarreling that went on in that place, Moses named it Massa and Meribah. Massa means tempting or testing. Meribah means chiding or strife. And in that place, Exodus 17, 7, says the Israelites tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us? Or not. On the pinnacle of the temple, the devil challenges Jesus. If God is really with you, and how common is it actually for us to question whether or not God is with us when we are experiencing suffering, when we are experiencing trials, when we are sorely tempted? If God is with you, the devil goads Jesus again, prove it. Prove it. Make him do something. Force his hand. Put him to the test. This is an awful reversal of roles when you think of it. Christian, the devil wants you to put God on trial in your sufferings. But trials are not to test God's faithfulness. That has been established. Trials are to test our faithfulness. The devil wants us to spin that around and put God on the hook. Or as C.S. Lewis would say, put God in the dark. When the Israelites tested God, when they questioned whether he was among them or not, it made him angry. It made him angry because testing God is not trusting God. And Jesus isn't going to do that. He has come to succeed where Israel has failed. Jesus says to the tempter, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, that's the second time that Jesus is responding to the enemy with the truth of Scripture. And while that's not the moral of the story, it's a point worth noting. If you and I want to overcome temptation, if we want to pass the test, if we want to not be deceived by the ploys of our enemy, Jesus has given us a method. Jesus has shown us a way. We must know the word and we must bring it to bear on our unique situation. Christian. What is, think about this now, what is your weakness? What is your weak spot? What transgression is it that seems to regularly or consistently trip you up? 
what is the writer of Hebrews would say? What is the sin that so easily besets you? What is the sin that entangles you? The imagery there of, of having something wrapped around you so that you can't move freely. You cannot finish your course. You cannot proceed. What is that sin? You probably know what it is. It probably wasn't too hard for you to identify that almost as soon as I said it. But listen, do you know what the Bible says about it? You know what it is that trips you up, but do you know what the Bible says about it? Do you know what the, how the Bible describes it? Do you know how the Bible explains it? Do you know how the Bible uh, lends insight into it? You see, when we see a pattern of failing in our lives, a particular area where we tend to sin, we've got to know what the Scripture says about it. We've got to do diligence, due diligence, and get in there and find out what the Bible says. And honestly, we might reasonably question if we're actually trying to resist temptation if we don't even know how the Bible diagnoses it or how the Bible commands treatment. As one wise person has said, the reason that we struggle with resisting temptation sometimes is because we don't want to discourage it completely. Part of discouraging temptation completely is getting in there and getting God's viewpoint on it. And God has given us one offensive weapon to use in our spiritual battle, right? You find this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Pastor and author Tim Keller asks, If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not presume to face the forces of evil in the world without a profound knowledge of the Bible in mind and heart, how could we try to face life any other way? Well, we can't, or we shouldn't anyway. We must have the Bible in our heads and in our hearts to successfully repel and overcome the sinful temptations that we are bound to face. We must know that word. All the more reason to join with us in our congregation, congregational reading plan. Join with us as we walk our way through the New Testament in four months. So with his first two attempts to derail Jesus unsuccessful, the enemy comes back with one more. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now in Scripture, mountains are, are a place where people go, not just for the breathtaking views, but to worship God. These are places where God reveals himself often, and it's clear that the devil here would like to take the place of God in Jesus' life. The issue is worship. And worship is always an issue, isn't it, to one degree or another. It's a question that we're constantly asking and answering. Who or what, to whom or what will we give ourselves? Whatever we love most is what we worship. And God in his word says this worship belongs to him alone. We got to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. But here the devil bids Jesus to switch his affections in exchange for wealth and in exchange for glory. And Jesus could very well have responded with another quote from Deuteronomy. He might even have had this in mind. Deuteronomy 8, verses 18 and 19. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. 
that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. But Jesus could have responded to the devil with that verse, but he didn't need to. You see, the enemy knows scripture, but he's not going to be changed by it. So to this final temptation, a kingdom without the cost of a cross and glory without suffering, Jesus simply responds, be gone, Satan. Resist the devil, the book of James says, and he will flee from you. Resist him. Set yourself against him. Oppose him. Say no to him. When it comes to dealing with temptation, it was Martin Luther who said this. He said, we cannot prevent birds from flying over our heads, but we can stop them from building nests in our hair. Temptations are going to come, but they don't have to be entertained. And when the devil knocks, if you invite him in for coffee, you're in trouble. And if you open the door just a crack, he's going to kick it in. So once more, Jesus shows us how to deal with our enemy. He dismisses the tempter, again quoting scripture, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now this story in Matthew's gospel is more than an intriguing account of a wilderness hike with some teleporting tossed in. Matthew's is a gospel of the kingdom. And here we see that Jesus is the worthy king. In the face of temptation, he stands where Adam fell. In the wilderness test, he succeeds where Israel failed. He does what no one else before him ever did, and no one following him ever could remain sinless. Here in the desert and throughout his earthly life, and so the fourth chapter and the 15th verse of the book of Hebrews says of Jesus, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the hymn writer got it right. Jesus knows all about our struggles. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He really does. His knowledge of our struggles comes from a place of personal experience. He was tempted as we are, and we know from Scripture that he passed all the tests. How about you? Have you passed all the tests in this life? Not, not a lot of them, not most of them, not some. Have you passed all the tests? Or do you relate better to Oscar Wilde who said, I can resist anything but temptation? The truth is this, that we are susceptible to temptation, that we often fall for it, that we gratify the flesh, that we put God on trial, that we chase after wealth and honor and power and status, and we let these things become more important to us than serving the Lord. And if that is true, and I believe that is true, and if we had to stand before God on our own record, how would we be found? We would be found guilty as sin because of our sin. But Jesus came to do 
for us what we could not do for ourselves. And then, and this is the glory, to pass to us his accomplishment as if it were our very own. He went to the cross paying the penalty for our sins, taking our unrighteousness on himself in order to credit his righteousness to our accounts. The righteousness of Jesus, then, is mine. The righteousness of Jesus can be yours, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, as if I never committed nor had any sins and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. Jesus passed the test for you. Will you enter eternity to stand before a holy God with his report card in your hand or your own? The answer to that question is determined by whether you accept him or reject him as Savior and Lord. In a moment, we're going to have a number on the screen. If you are ready to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you want to renew your relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're interested in strengthening your relationship with Jesus Christ, call or text that number so that we can talk with you. We'll conclude our worship this morning with a benediction. May the Almighty Lord, who is a most strong tower to all that put their trust in him, be now and evermore your defense and make you to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven through whom you may receive healing and salvation, but only the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let the